Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. Dark Mummery by Thorpe McCluskey Until the early spring of 1939, I had never entered a reputedly haunted house, nor had I ever met anyone who had done so. It all came about in rather a rambling sort of way, starting off with twelve or fifteen of us driving down to Phipps Cove on a Saturday afternoon to spend the weekend with the Bradley Merrills. How long ago that seems now! I looked forward to a truly delightful weekend. I already knew, or at least was acquainted with, several of the guests. Bob Mansfield, who paints for art's sake designs fanciful and expensive apartments for the very wealthy for a living. Rebekoff, who has a marionette show. Gladys Sugden, the caustic hoydenish novelist, and three or four others. Merrill, by the way, was and still is an illustrator. The afternoon was very casual and delightful. We played a sort of haphazard tennis on the lawn, swam, those of us with polar bear instincts, in the freezing surf, and just talked and wandered about. Dinner was at seven, in a high-ceilinged, creamy-white room with a huge black marble fireplace at one end, in which a driftwood fire snapped, showering multicoloured sparks against the heavy screen. The meal was leisurely. It was already dark outside, as we finally assembled in the big, gracious living-room for brandies and highballs. As usual, Bradley and Elsa had prepared no set routine for the evening— Vladimir Lesov started things off by wandering over to the Chickering and treating us to an impromptu concert. Then Clevedor put on some of his magic, and following Clevedor we danced. The evening passed swiftly. It was with incredulous surprise that I saw Bradley glance at the tall walnut clock in the hall and dramatically raise his hand. In ten seconds, my pious friends and I hope not too drunken companions, it will be exactly midnight. Eastern Standard Time. He had hardly finished speaking when the old clock whirred and rasped, and bonged out twelve slow strokes. We all listened gravely, and immediately the brazen clangor had ceased, Gladys Sugden made the inevitable suggestion. Ghost story! Who'll tell a ghost story? Dryly, Bob Mansfield applied the sophisticated squelch. Why, Gladys, you of all people— "'We don't have to do anything as tame as that. "'Not when there's a haunted house right here at the cove.' "'I had heard of that house. "'A few miles distant along the shore road, "'it had stood empty for a half-century or more. "'It was popularly supposed to have been built by Jeremiah Phipps, "'one of New England's more successful privateersmen, "'or, too frequently, pirates. "'Gladys, with just a trifle too much eagerness, so it seemed to me, fell in with the idea. Perfect! What could be better for Saturday night hijinks? I've always had a sneaking longing to go inside that house. Let's snoop over there tonight. There's a lovely moon. Well, we took a vote. The eyes won, of course, overwhelmingly. I think I suspected trickery from the very start. As a matter of fact, I learned afterward that I was right, and who the ringleaders were— Bradley, Bob Mansfield, and a meek-looking little cartoonist named Gregory. Gladys was in it, too. My certainty that we were in for some ghostly amateur theatricals was clinched when I noticed, as we were getting ready to leave the house, 
that Mansfield and Gregory had unobtrusively disappeared. I suspected that they were to be the ghosts of the evening. We piled into three or four cars, and drove the six or seven miles to the Phipps mansion. In the moonlight, it looked even more ancient, more forbidding than in daylight, with its gaunt exterior chimneys, and its deeply recessed, many-paned windows. As we swarmed toward its black pile, I looked in the shadows cast by the house, by the trees, for Mansfield's car, but there were a hundred pools of inky shadow, where a car could be hidden. Bradley did not have to unlock or force the door. It was unlocked and opened easily. That seemed significant to me. I was surer than ever that someone had gone ahead and was already hidden inside. When we were all in the hallway, Bradley closed the door behind us with a creaking of ponderous hinges, a rusty click of the wrought-iron latch, and turned on a flashlight. He led the way, with an assurance that led me to believe he had been there before, into a large room at the front of the house. I glimpsed briefly a long staircase leading up into the darkness at the end of the hallway. I sensed rather than saw the ornate moulding surmounting cold, vault-like spaces, a shrouding of heavy fine dust over everything. But I noticed, too, that Bradley had been careful to keep the beam of his flashlight turned upward until we were all inside that huge parlour, and I felt sure he had done that to keep us from noticing the fresh footprints of Mansfield and Gregory in the dust underfoot. Except for the light from the flashlight, the parlour was almost totally dark. Heavy wooden shutters over the windows permitted no moonlight to enter, except through two or three narrow cracks in the warped panels. The light was too faint to reveal more than the presence and position of the people in the room. Certainly, it was not strong enough to permit us to identify each other. "'Well, Brad, we're here,' Gladys Sugden chirped perkily. "'Bring on your ghosts, or shall we go looking for them? Who's afraid of the big bad ghosts, anyway?' Bradley parried that one. "'This is supposed to be a haunted house, isn't it, Gladys? Can't a ghost appear in this room, as well as upstairs, or in the cellar? I, for one, am staying here, and waiting for whatever happens. I don't want any rotten floors collapsing under me. This place isn't any palace of mirth.' I suspected he was afraid that we might stumble onto his ghosts, before they had a chance to get into their phosphorus paint. He won his point. He turned off the flashlight, to make it seem more realistic, he said. And we waited. I don't know just what I expected to happen. I admit, the uncertainty of waiting made me feel creepy, and it must have affected the others, who did not suspect any funny business much more powerfully. There was unreality in the whole adventure. There was unreality in the shadowy vagueness of our figures. There was unreality in the cold stillness of the long-shuttered room. I caught myself wondering how a bunch of supposedly intelligent adults could act so downright foolish. Then I began to notice the light. At first it was just the faintest, vaguest glow, hardly more than a lessening of the total blackness beyond the open hallway door. I seemed to feel the outlines of the hallway growing into visibility without actually seeing them as yet, limbed in a sort of purplish absence of complete darkness. That strange light was so vague that it might almost have been imagined. But the sudden creeping shriveling down my spine was real enough. The others felt it, too. 
I could sense that they were shrinking away from the doorway. The faint light grew stronger, and tension gripped me with a certainty that something was creeping silently down that staircase into the hall, invisible to me as yet from where I stood. I acknowledged unwillingly, then, that Bradley was putting on his show with utter artistry. No hollow groans or clanking chains, none of those two theatrical effects that defeat their own purpose— it was the very absence of effect that left our imaginations unhampered and built up an eerie apprehension in us. I wondered how Bradley would produce his ghosts without spoiling the effect. Perhaps he didn't intend to actually produce them at all. Perhaps he intended to get his effect in some other, less obvious way. I don't know how long we stood there in that empty room. It may have been several minutes while no person spoke changed position, while we strained our eyes trying to see in the light that was hardly less than blackness. The light, I told myself with admiration of my own cleverness, that must be made by the slow uncovering of a stained-glass window, letting the moonlight in. Once or twice I heard someone's breathing sharply indrawn, then released in a half-gasp. Then I saw the figures standing in the unearthly purplish gloom. Again, a queer flash of unwilling approbation swept me. Those figures were not skeletoned in phosphorus paint or anything as crude as that. They were merely vague blotches in human shape, standing silently in the almost non-existent visibility in the hallway. I have wondered since just how few of us did not, at that moment, really believe that they were ghosts. Gradually, then— in much the same manner as indirect lighting is controlled, the purplish glow began to brighten. With the increase in illumination, I began to feel sure that I recognized those two motionless figures. The one on the right, tall, slightly stooped, was certainly Mansfield. The dark blotch hiding the lower part of his face was a false beard. Those baggy trousers, that hinting of a cutlass at the waist— were all parts of the pirate costume Bradley had considered most appropriate for the occasion. The other fellow, standing to the left and slightly behind Mansfield, was Gregory, all right. He'd put a great daub of paint on his breast to simulate blood. He kept his hands folded over it. The figures neither moved nor spoke. The light was too dim for me to distinguish details of their features— and as it became slightly stronger, something of a nervous shock swept over me, as I sensed, rather than saw, that their lips were moving, as though they were trying to speak, that their hands were out thrust toward us, as though warning us back. It was an effect, undeniably. Bradley was putting his show over well, after all. Splitting the silence, a woman screamed, a high-pitched, keening note, in an instant the hypnotic tension that had gripped us all was broken. Bradley cursed and flipped on the flashlight. With a quick rushing of anxious footsteps, Gladys Sagden was at the side of the girl, who was sobbing violently. Bradley's voice boomed out reassuringly. "'That's all. That's enough. It's just been a joke, folks. For God's sake, make her understand that it's just a joke, Gladys. <laughs> a joke that wasn't in very good taste. I'm sorry.' He swung the light on the two figures standing in the doorway. "'All right, Bob, Gregory, fun's fun, a joke's a joke, enough's enough. Come on in, break it up.' But the two figures did not move, 
They still stood there, holding their hands outstretched toward us, their lips moving. Then Bradley swore, viciously, horribly, without mirth. "'You pig-headed fools! Can't you see that you're scaring one of the girls half to death? Get in here and take off that junk!' Still, the figure stood there, motionless, tableau-esque. I think that we were all beginning to be afraid that they had entered so fully into the spirit of the deception that they were temporarily crazed. Even Bradley had no knowledge of what they might do next. What further macabre jest they might have planned was as unknown to him as to us. Curiously, though I was watching them with single-minded attention, I noticed other things, too. I noticed, with a sort of detached interest, that there really was, as I had suspected, a stained-glass window, high above the staircase, a window which dispelled that unearthly glow over the hallway, now stronger, now weaker, as the moon was bright or obscured by clouds. Almost stealthily, Bradley kept edging forward. He was within six feet of Mansfield, his torch shining blindingly in Mansfield's face. I was only a pace or two behind— and I could see Mansfield's face clearly. There was an uncanny fixity in his gaze that gave me, despite myself, a feeling of discomfort that was very close to horror. The thought came to me abruptly, Is this damned place really haunted, after all? Have these fellows seen something that drove them out of their minds? Bradley cursed again, sharply. The unexpected, brutal sound jarred against my eardrums with a force of an explosion. With the curse, Bradley leaped forward, his right hand, furiously outstretched, clutched at Mansfield. Mansfield and Bradley glided—yes, glided—back, swiftly, yet effortlessly. The sudden, relatively violent motion of all three reminded me bizarrely of the quick shifting of scenes thrown on a screen by an old-fashioned magic lantern. Then the tableau was resumed— but now Bradley was standing in the centre of the hallway, holding his right hand out before him, looking at it with a strange intentness. Mansfield and Gregory had halted at the foot of the staircase, their hands still outthrust, thrusting us back. Bradley spoke like a drunken person. "'Bob! Bob!' His shoulders hunched, he shuffled doggedly, unsteadily forward, and as he approached Mansfield and Gregory, turned and leaped up the staircase, the light from the flashlight shining full on them, on the staircase, and the wall above and behind them. Then that thing happened which is beyond normal human experience. Instantaneously, suddenly as a bolt of lightning, two strangers were also there at the top of the staircase, two sun-swathed, lithe-muscled men, men with flashing teeth beneath heavy moustaches, with the glint of gold in their ears, and the glitter of cutlasses in their hands. It was like a silent motion picture, running at top speed. There was no sound, only an utter violence of motion. There should have been the thudding of bare feet on the staircase, but I heard no such sound. There should have been the heavy panting of those men, and the harsh burst of their curses— but I heard only silence. Mansfield and Gregory plunged upward to the head of the staircase. Mansfield was slightly in the lead. His right arm swung up in a chopping blow that seemed to go through one of the men, as through a mirage. 
His body, tense to meet resistance that was not there, spun crazily around and plunged over the low balustrade. I listened for the crash of his fall, and heard no sound. I saw Gregory catapult against the other stranger, hurtle through that man in the instant a cutlass flashed, and disappear beyond my range of vision on the staircase landing. Abruptly, no one was there, no one at all. The head of the staircase gaped down at us, blank, barren, deserted. I heard Gladys Sugden screaming. She was trying to call Mansfield's name, but the sounds that came from her lips were unrecognizable. My body was trembling violently, and spasms of hot and cold swept over me. I think that horror gripped us all then like a mighty fist, squeezed us until we were incapable of thought— until we could only stand there and feel it engulfing us in beating waves. I knew then that those two strangers were the ghosts, the true ghosts of old Jeremiah Phipps' mansion. What, in the name of the Almighty, had we just seen reenacted? The experience through which Mansfield and Gregory had passed early in the evening? An experience so mind-shattering that it had driven them mad? Where were they? Radley! My voice was a whispered rattle. Where are they? Mansfield and Gregory, where are they? Bradley looked at me, his eyes enormous, his lips trembling. Where are they? he repeated slowly. He moved his hands in an odd, uncontrolled way, helplessly. While he stared at me, I took the flashlight from him. Somehow, I started up the staircase, and Bradley followed. At the top, on the landing where, like uplifted arms, narrower flights continued upward into the gloom, we halted. There, beneath a stained-glass window, huddled far back against the wall and hidden from view from below by the pitch of the staircase, lay the twisted body of a man, fallen as if death had come as he had catapulted across the landing from the staircase below. Bradley moaned, and I felt the balustrade shudder as he sagged heavily against it. I was trembling uncontrollably. The body was the body of Gregory. Somehow, we found the courage, after a moment, to look down. With photographic clarity, our eyes saw, and our numbed minds recorded automatically, the staring horror in Gregory's wide-open, glazing eyes, the smear of crimson paint over his heart. Without speaking, we turned away and staggered down that staircase. As though urged by a fate beyond human capacity to resist, I turned the flashlight beam into the dark recess behind the staircase, beneath the balustrade across which Mansfield had seemed to plunge. Without surprise, I saw that Mansfield's body was there, spread-eagled as though he had put out his arms to break the fall, crushed against the naked floor, his neck broken. I remember little of what else happened that night. I do not know if among us there were hysterical outbursts or a more terrible, controlled silence. I do not remember how or when we left that house. Memory grows clearer with the next day, with the beginnings of the grinding police investigation, the certainty with which the police believed that we had trumped up a fantastic story to cover a double murder in our fast set the newspaper headlines. 
It was a long time before that night in the old Phipps house was forgotten by the public, but it was forgotten at last, and for years it remained as no more than an area of nightmare in the recesses of my memory, until last summer, when the old house was finally torn down to save taxes, somebody told me. About that time, I chanced to meet Bradley in town one day. He looked more distinguished than ever with his prematurely white hair, and he looked at my greying temples with wry understanding. They're either too young or too old. He softly sang a phrase from the hit song, and made a quick, angry gesture with his right hand. We're too old, and that's that. How about lunch? In the quiet, around the corner off the avenue restaurant to which he took me, he told me those things which drew all the threads together, wrote Finnis to the story of Phipps' mansion. I couldn't stay away, after they started to raise that house, he said slowly, quietly. I went down there almost every day. I knew that they would find something. Call it premonition, intuition, what you will. I knew that they would find something, some explanation in that staircase. I watched them take up the flooring on that landing, rip up the rubble, the stone and mortar, beneath. That house was built to endure. Old Phipps, when he built it, was ready to settle down all right. But first he had to get rid of his past. He must have had a couple of his men who wanted to stay on shore with him, even though he'd split his bloody plunder with them, with his crew. But old Phipps knew that those two fellows we saw at the top of that staircase weren't the kind he wanted around him, in his respectability. This must have been what happened. When the masons had just about finished filling in that staircase, old Phipps just bashed in the heads of those two sailors of his and dumped the bodies in the mortar and covered them up. They found the skeletons just the other day, you know. I picked up my coffee, put it down again. I read in the paper about the gold earrings and the cutlasses they dug up with those skeletons, I said. Bradley looked at me thoughtfully. Funny about those cutlasses. <laughs> Remember that Gregory's body was unmarked, and that he died of heart failure? I picked up my cap again. Once again I put it down. Gregory. Mansfield, I whispered. What a horrible way to die. Think of it. They went up that staircase the second time, after they had already seen the ghosts. That was a reenactment, wasn't it, Bradley? We could have saved them then. They were crazy with fear, but not crazy enough not to try to yarn us. We should have knocked them down, tied them up, anything. Only we should have saved them somehow. Slowly, Bradley shook his head. A curious, faraway look the look of one who gazed into the depths of the infinite, came into his eyes. No, my friend, we couldn't have saved them. It was too late for that. But they were already dead when we saw them in that, yes, it was a reenactment. They were dead before we entered the house. We saw not two, but four ghosts that night. When I tried to grasp Mansfield there in that hallway, my hand went through him as though through a nothingness a nothingness that was cold and empty and terrible as the black dead space beyond the farthest stars. <laughs>